everybody, welcome back to 365 Days with MXM Tune. I'm Maya, a singer, songwriter, video maker, Oakland native, and a heist historian. I'm also a huge history nerd. I love untold stories, gross facts, hidden secrets, anything weird, dark, and funky from the past, and each day I'm going to share some of my favorite deep cuts with you, so let's dig into today's stories with a trigger warning for violent crime. It's 365 with MXM Tune. New facts every day, so don't leave too soon. I'm gonna teach you stuff, no, it won't be tough. Gonna go a year till you've had enough. It's 365. Today, in 1950, 11 men robbed $1.2 million in cash and $1.5 million in securities, like checks and money orders, from the armored car company Brinks in Boston. It came to be known as the Great Brinks Robbery. Right before 7.30 p.m. on January 17th, a group of armed and mass robbers left the Brinks building, located at 165 Prince Street, dragging bags of money. $1,218,211 in cash and $1,557,183 in checks and money orders. The Brinks robbery went on to be called, by some, the crime of the century, or the perfect crime, or the fabulous Brinks robbery. Now that's renown, getting your burglary called fabulous. After the robbers drove away from Brinks, an employee called the Boston Police Department, and both the police and the FBI quickly descended on the crime scene. Unfortunately, they didn't find much to work with at the crime scene. Interviews were conducted with five employees who were present during the robbery, and police figured out that between five and seven robbers had come into the building. They were all wearing Navy-issued peacoats, gloves, and chauffeur's chaps. Quite the outfit, but there's more. Every robber's face was disguised by a Halloween mask. They even wore specific shoes to make their footsteps make less noise. They were nothing, if not thorough. From the precision with which the robbery happened, the police and witnesses surmised that they'd had had the opportunity to carefully plan and practice the crime. The robbers had opened three or four locked doors to get to the second story of Brinks, which is where the employees caught in the middle of the robbery were, checking and securing money that the store had collected from customers all day. Once the robbers got through the locked doors to the second floor, they told all the employees to lie face down on the ground and held at gunpoint. Their hands were tied behind their backs and their mouths were taped over. Strangely, one of the employees' glasses were lost during this moment, and they were never found at the bank. So did the crooks also steal somebody's glasses? An alarm buzzer sounded while the burglars were putting money into the bags, and the robbers removed the tape from one of the workers' mouths to ask what the buzzer signified and they replied that it was a signal that someone was trying to enter the vault. The person who buzzed was a garage attendant. Two of the robbers made moves to capture him, but he walked away from the door, and they decided to stay in the room, working on the crime, instead of apprehending the attendant. Though the investigators didn't really find very much evidence at the crime scene, they did find a few physical clues of the robbery. One of the robbers had left his chauffeur's cap, and the rope and the tape that they used to bind the workers was also left behind. The thieves had also stolen four revolvers, and the police recorded the serial numbers of the missing weapons in case they came up in criminal databases. In the hours after the robbery, the police began to bring in well-known Boston crime lords. At the same time, authorities began to question residents of the highly populated tenement housing in the area to see if anyone had seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. 
All current and past employees of Brinks were investigated, as well as everyone who worked in the same building. Police and FBI agents also tried to get descriptive data around missing securities, and customers were contacted for information about the packaging and shipping materials that they used. The case was put out on the front page of national newspapers, and the company offered a $100,000 award for any information that could help the investigation. This led people all over the country to send in tips that they thought might be helpful for the investigation. People gave all kinds of tips, like, hey, maybe the money was hidden in the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know how they came up with that one, but the FBI did actually do a thorough search of the waterfront. Prisoners called with overheard conversations from fellow inmates, and ordinary citizens who were seen spending outlandish amounts of money were reported to the police, but none of the leads ended up providing any useful information. There were several gangs who were suspected of involvement, but the FBI investigation of each of them just gathered proof that they weren't the ones behind the robbery. Several big figures in the Boston crime scene were considered to be suspects, but the police and FBI couldn't find enough evidence to arrest them or officially link them to the crime. There was one thing linking the men that the FBI began to suspect. All of their alibis made a significant mention at the time, 7 p.m., The robbery had happened at 7.30, and the specificity of this range of alibis, all making a point to say something at 7 p.m., seemed significant, but again, it was not enough to arrest the suspects. It wasn't until six years after the robbery that one of the criminals, being held in jail on another charge, decided to confess to the FBI. Tensions between the men involved in the robbery had been running high for several years, and one, Joseph O'Keefe, felt like he no longer had influence over the other burglars because he was in jail. He revealed not only everyone involved, but also how they had planned and gotten away with the crime. Their preparations had been so thorough that they had even managed to get into the building on numerous occasions and steal lock cylinders so that they could get the bank keys copied. Eleven criminals were charged as being involved with the robbery. The trial was held in August of 1956, but only eight men were tried because two were dead and O'Keefe had already pled guilty when he confessed. All eight of the men were found guilty by the jury and received life sentences. The case was finally solved. Today, for our musical spot of the episode, we have a lovely, lovely guest. We have Chelsea Cutler here to talk about a day in her life and her journey with music. I hope you all enjoy getting to hear her story. January 17th is a really special day for me because I released my debut album, How to Be Human. I got to celebrate the album release with my entire team and my family and all my friends, so it felt super good to be surrounded and supported by all the most important people in my life. I'll never forget how much everyone showed up for me that night because pursuing a less conventional career path like music can be a little intimidating and I really wouldn't have had the courage to do something like put out a debut album without everybody encouraging me and supporting me along the way. So I think moving forward every year on January 17th, I'll get to remember how fortunate I am to have all of these incredible people in my life. And now for our final segment of the day, I will be going into my own photo archives to see what I was up to on a January 17th in my life. Oh my god, this is wild. On January 17th, 2018, I went and I got boba. <laughs> I don't do anything else with my life, apparently, beyond get boba. Um, 
I do have this chart here from 538 that I took. I don't remember what it was for necessarily, but the, the title on it, this was 2019. It says I took this quiz. Um, and it was basically to show you your extroversion in comparison to the national average. Um, mine is embarrassingly low. I know that I'm an introvert and I really don't get any energy whatsoever from talking to other people. My sociability score though was a 24, <laughs> whereas the national average is around 55 and higher. Um, <laughs> my energy level was also at like, it looks to be around a 10, whereas the national average again is supposed to be 50. Um, so if you ever meet me and I don't seem like my energy level is very high, I swear it's not personal. I just, I just am basically like if a sloth got reincarnated into a person and I'm doing my very best. I just, I just am low energy and tired a lot of the time. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow. Go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow at 365 Days MXM Tune on your preferred social media platforms. Thanks for listening. It's 365 with MXM Tune. New facts every day, so don't leave too soon. I'm gonna teach you stuff. No, it won't be tough. Gonna go a year till you.